So one of the things that Greg and I have tried to emphasize in this series of sermons on the Ten Commandments is that these are not simply things for us to avoid doing. It's not just a list of rules that keep us out of trouble with God or with anybody else, that actually these commandments are a way that we are told to find life and meaning and purpose. And that if we live this way, we will be blessed with those things. If we choose to live another way, we'll have to live with the consequences. The ninth commandment, which is our focus for this morning, in the Revised Standard Version says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That commandment is really set within the context, right, of a legal system. Don't give false testimony against your neighbor. In biblical times, before DNA evidence and videotapes and expert witnesses, what you really relied on in a court of law was the testimony of another person for your character, for exactly what they saw happen, whatever the case might be. And so you were bound, if you were one of God's people, to not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't go into a court of law, get asked questions, and then lie about what you saw happening. Now it's interesting, since this time, as things have evolved and we've become much more sophisticated, eyewitnesses have become famously unreliable. Right? And you all know that. How many of you have ever attended a sporting event in your life? All right. So let's pretend, just pretend that you're at the Crosstown Rivalry when the Cubs play the White Sox later this summer. The mighty first place Cubs against the White Sox. Okay. Let's just, we have no biases. All right. So you're a White Sox fan. You're all sitting on one side of the field and the Cubs fans are on the other side of the field. And you watch a very close play at second base. And the runner for the White Sox is called safe. And all the Cubs fans boo. And all the White Sox fans cheer. They were all eyewitnesses to the same thing. They were both notoriously unreliable, right? So we see things with a bias. We see things with our own perspective. We have the, the kinds of things that get in the way. But don't give any false testimony. God's people were to be known to be truth tellers. And this is where we get this thing that we have still in our court system today, right? If you're sworn in as a witness, you are sworn in with your hand on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, correct? So this is, it all comes from the Bible. It comes from uh, this constant idea of the commandments. We've been using uh, as a way to understand the broadest meaning of these um, commandments, not just their literal meaning, but the broadest meaning, uh, this teaching tool that we use in Reform Circles called the Heidelberg Catechism. And in question and answer uh, number 112, they talk about the ninth commandment. So I'll read the question, and then it's important for you to read the answer, Okay. What is the aim of the ninth commandment? I never give false And so you see how 
we can actually broaden the idea of the literal meaning of this, ten, of this ninth commandment. I mean, we live in a culture, right, where lying is an epidemic. It's not something that happens occasionally. It's not something that people do once in a while. It's an epidemic in our society. $50 million is lost every year to fraud schemes by people in the United States. Somebody calls you up, someone sends you an email, something happens, and they're basically lying to you. Now, the demographic that is most um, conducive to falling prey to fraud schemes, people age 65 and older. It's not the reason that you think it is, however. Uh, I just had my 65th birthday in May, and it's not because I have diminished mental skills that I fall to fraudulent schemes. What happens is, is that people who are 65 and older tend to make their decisions more based on emotion. They're much more emotional than younger people who are much more rational. And these fraudulent schemes are based on emotions. They tell you some emotional story about someone who's dying and needs your money. Or I'm stranded. I got one a couple, weeks, a couple years ago um, from a friend of mine who I knew uh, who has plenty of money. I mean, this is almost silly that he was like sending me one of these emails and saying, oh, I'm stranded in Europe and I can't get back. And if you just send me your social security number and $500,000, I'll be able to get out of here. And I, so I sent it right away. I mean, it was right. <laughs> it's these kind of fraudulent schemes. I mean, you know, they use a friend's name. They tell you some sad story. You emotionally react to it. Nearly 60% of the resumes that exist in the world today contain lies. The most common resume lies are exaggerations and inflated numbers about the dates of employment that we've worked somewhere. I mean, we always want people to think we're long-term employees. The salary that we had, that's always good to lie about. Or some kind of extravagant job title that really we didn't have, but it sounds really good on a resume. Bogus degrees and imaginary certifications are less common, but they're frequent enough. So resumes contain all sorts of lies. I don't know how you hire anybody these days. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, people surveyed said that 91% of us lie about trivial things. That's pretty much everybody in the room. If you're part of the 9%, raise your hand. Oh, see, no one wants to think that they're... Okay. 36% lie about important things. 86% of the people lie regularly to their parents. I'm not going to take confessions this morning. I'm just going to throw it out there. 75% people lie to their friends, and 69% of us lie to our spouses. We are a nation of liars. This is all based on research. A lie is any distortion of the truth. And sometimes when we lie, we tell the truth, but we only tell part of the truth to make it sound a little better than it really might be. Like I might tell you, no, I never speed when I'm driving. That is the absolute truth. I never speed. Becky could be an eyewitness to this. But she might bear false testimony. Uh, I never speed when I'm driving in my subdivision. I left that little piece of truth out, right? I buy never speed when I'm driving in my subdivision, right? Or um, my husband is the number one salesperson in his company. I mean, it's a one salesman company, but he's the number one salesman, all right? We even have a business that makes their money by lying. It's called the National Enquirer, right? You've seen this on the news rack. How many of you subscribe to the National Enquirer? No one wants to admit that, right? But you read these headlines. These are, these are supposedly news stories. What's interesting about the National Enquirer is in their byline, they say that their purpose is to share gossip about famous people. 
I mean, they don't even try to hide the fact that it's really not news. They don't say we try to share news about people. We try to share gossip about people. And I did not know that Hillary only had six months to live, but I can't wait to put that on my Facebook page when I get home. There's another business that tries to correct lies, things that are spread on the Internet, these wild and crazy stories that we read all the time. Some of them aren't that crazy, right, about what happens. I mean, I, uh, I guess uh, a couple weeks ago when they had the shooting in Orlando and 49 people were killed, there was a news story that went out across the Internet that the guy had reloaded his 30-shot chamber of his gun seven different times in a matter of like three minutes. And that was reported, and everybody was sharing, that's amazing, the guy's amazing, it's impossible to do. But a lot of people believe that until you check your Snopes, right? Snopes is the, is the organization that kind of sniffs out all the untruths on the Internet and corrects all the lies that are out there. But we have, isn't it, what does it say about a society that has to have an organization that helps us vet the truth for things that we really can't believe? Nobody loves the phrase, well, I read it on the Internet, it has to be true. <laughs> I mean, our culture is so hooked online that we need an industry to make sure we know what the truth is. But, but most of us just kind of engage in what we think are uh, trivial kinds of lies. We stretch the truth a little bit about ourselves. It has, has its foundation in pride. You know, we're not really lying. We just don't lie very boldly. We just kind of sneak it in there, kind of. We simply tr- stretch the truth about ourselves to protect our own image. Social psychology research indicates that all of us think we're a little bit above average. So when I uh, showed that slide up there that said that 80%, 86% of the kids lie to, your, lie to their parents, right? 86%. Most of the kids were going, oh, not me. I'm part of the 14%. Or your parents are going, my kids would never lie to me. Now, that's the biggest lie you could ever buy. But we all think we're above average. Well, I'm above average. I would never lie to my parents. We all think we're above average spouses. We all think we're above average Christians. We all think we're above average employees. But if that's the case, how do we get to average? You ever thought about that? If everybody's above average, there is nothing that makes it average. It doesn't make any sense at all. But we love to believe these things about ourselves. Our sales numbers are higher than others. Our one loss record as a coach is better than most people. It's above average. Our production and work is above average because we're all just a little bit above average. Now, clergy are not immune from this. I hate to tell you the truth about clergy people, but we love to stretch the truth. But we have this great biblical phrase that we use, especially for preachers. We call it hyperbole. It's really not lying. It's, not, it's hyperbole. You've got to kind of make a point. But if you go to a clergy convention or a clergy gathering or a denominational meeting, you're going to see a group of clergy people get together, and within about five or ten minutes, they're talking about how many members their church has or how many people attend worship. And it's all kind of a matter of, well, you told me this, well, I'll tell you this. And I mean, it's always trying to outdo the other person. Now, if you actually went there, their churches on Sunday morning, you'd be sadly disappointed in the reality of how many people were actually attending their worship services. And it's amazing what happens in those conversations when a denominational executive enters himself into the conversation. Suddenly the numbers start to get deflated. Because every church has to pay a certain amount to the denomination for all the people who attend their church or all of the members. And all of a sudden the numbers are different. It's amazing what happens to clergy people. I I hate it when those other clergy people do that kind of thing. I would never engage in this kind of behavior. Now one of the premises that the sermon series is based on is that modern technology and social media has made living within God's boundaries much more difficult. 
I mean, social media kind of allows us to stretch the truth a lot about ourselves or our business or our family members. We kind of use social media as a public relations tool, a marketing tool for ourselves or our children or someone else. I mean, I've never read this post on Facebook. My daughter has declared bankruptcy following her arrest for drug trafficking. That's something you'll never see on Facebook. Or my son pitched really great last night. He only allowed nine runs in the first inning before they took him out of the game with only one out. You never see that on Facebook. Or my daughter wasn't valedictorian, but 279 out of 282 is not bad in her class. I mean, it's as if we all kind of live in Lake Wobegon, right? Where all the women are strong and all the men are handsome and all the children are above average. This is the way we kind of explain ourselves. It's all a matter of pride. When we can be our own self-promoter, we just fudge on the truth a little bit about what's happening to make ourselves feel a little bit better or look a little bit better in other people's eyes. Good thing there's not a Snopes for our personal lies. Now, another way that we violate this commandment is to slander other people or to spread gossip. And it's so common that it hardly ever appears on our radar screen. It's like almost automatic for us. And that's because very few of us really understand what gossip means. The definition of gossip is casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people. Typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. So you, someone tells you something after church in the narthex about someone else, and you go and repeat it about somebody else, and you never really know whether what they told you was true or not, but we just kind of repeated it. Well, they would never lie to me. That's, I can't imagine. That's got to be the truth. I can't wait to tell somebody else. This is the way gossip kind of snowballs. This is really what takes place, and it's just slander and lying about other people. And there are some great gossip centers that we don't even think of and aren't named often. You want to know what a great gossip center is? A teacher's lounge at any school. I mean, and I'm not saying this as gossip. I've been in teacher's lounges. I've heard what is said. Talk about parents. Talk about administrators. Talk about, uh, you know, people in the community. Talk about the churches. Talk about other parents. Whatever the case might be, it's a great gossip center in a teacher's lounge at any school. Uh, another great gossip center is any break room at any business, Right? Hey, have you heard about this? Did you hear about that? This is where gossip centers kind of exist. You know another great gossip center, unfortunately? Church small groups. Church small groups are another great gossip center where gossip takes place all the time, according to the definition. We love juicy stories. We love information about other people that we didn't know before. Whenever someone uses the phrase, hey, did you hear about? You could almost see everybody kind of lean forward to listen more carefully about what juicy tidbit they might hear next that they don't really know. And we're all guilty of this sin. Listening and hearing the gossip is probably as bad as spreading the rumors. Whenever someone begins a conversation with the phrase, did you hear about, perhaps we should bow out of the conversation and not listen any longer. At least that would be suggested by this commandment. Now these commandments are not so much about what we should avoid... But they're predicated on how we should be different as we, as we try to be more and more like Jesus every day. I mean, look at this Heidelberg Catechism answer once again. It, it talks about the things that we should avoid. I mean, it's got some strong language in there, right? About how we should never give false testimony. Against never is a big word. We should everywhere else in court and everywhere else we should avoid lying or deceit. But when you get to the last couple sentences, here's what we should do. You know, you can kind of forget about what we shouldn't do because if you do what we should do, you're not going to do the first part. I should love the truth. I should speak the truth candidly and openly acknowledge it. 
and I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. That's our responsibility as people who are trying to be God's source of shining light and living water in the world every day. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, John writes about a conversation uh, that Jesus had with his disciples. And he was informing them about his imminent departure and his death. And Thomas asked a question that was on every disciple's mind. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And the answer is part of the greeting that Greg gave this morning. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not I speak the truth, not I represent the truth, not you can find out the truth from me. I am the truth, Jesus said. I'm the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Objective truth is what Jesus is talking about here. An objective truth is truth that is valid regardless of whether people believe it or not. We don't have much faith in objective truth today in the culture in which we live. There is no objective truth. Truth is based on your perceptions and your beliefs and your ideas and your feelings, and they all have equal footing because we just don't any longer believe in objective truth. Objective truth is a truth that is valid regardless of whether people believe it or not. It's a truth that exists apart from our own personal feelings or beliefs or ideas. And for generations, our culture assumed objective truth was real. Our Constitution has this phrase in it, right? There are certain truths that are self-evident. We believed in certain truths that were self they were obvious to us, but not any longer, because whatever your truth is might be different than your truth, might be different than your truth, might be different than your truth. So it isn't that obvious any longer, and we don't have to believe in objective truth. There was a time when education was based on the assumption that objective truth existed. The principle of objective truth was applied to physics and psychology. It was applied to history and religion. It was applied to biology and business management. And today that assumption has basically disappeared. Today we believe in education that the only place you can apply objective truth to is science and mathematics. And everything else is relative. And whatever you want to believe or whatever your idea is is a right idea compared to anybody else's. It's no longer assumed by anyone that God exists or that human beings are inherently sinful, or that there are moral absolutes for anything in life. It's all relative. Now, Christ followers are people who understand and embrace an objective truth, the way, the truth, and the life. The truth revealed in Scripture through the person of Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of all other truth, which makes us truth tellers. There is an objective truth. Now, people are offended when you read verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 6 of the Gospel of John. They're not that offended by, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's, if you want to believe that, that's okay. But they don't really like, no one can come to the Father except through me. Well, hold it. There must be other ways to get to God. There's lots of ways. There's all sorts of different religions. We all take a different path. We all get to the same God. No, there. That's not what Jesus said. I'm the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people say, well, isn't that kind of exclusive? Isn't that kind of narrow-minded? Well, it sounds like it's narrow-minded until you understand the truth. In every other religion in the world, we have to earn our way into God's presence and his acceptance. We have to somehow do something that makes us worthy of it. 
In Christianity, our relationship with God is a free gift. No one comes to the Father except those who accept the free gift of relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that exclusive of a club, ladies and gentlemen. It's open to anyone who wants to embrace the grace and love of Jesus Christ. We were told by Jesus when he was asked one time by a, a Jewish leader, well, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments. Well, I have a follow-up question, uh, Rabbi Jesus. My follow-up question is this. Who's my neighbor? I mean, because in their minds, their neighbor were people who believed what they believed, lived the way they lived, worshipped the way they worshipped. Those were their neighbors. Everybody else was not their neighbor. And therefore, they didn't have to love them because they didn't have the same kind of ideas that they had. And so Jesus didn't answer the question uh, with kind of objective truth. He simply said, well, let me tell you this story. There was a guy who was walking down the road one day, and he was, um, he, he was jumped by robbers and thieves. And they beat him up, and they took everything he had, and they left him in the ditch to die. And a priest came by, a representative of the church, a representative of God. He came by and he saw the guy in the ditch and he kind of looked and he went, eh, that looks horrible, but I got to get somewhere, I got to go. So he went off on his way. A Levite came by, Jesus said, a representative of an order of the Jewish faith that kind of organized everything for everybody else. And that leader came by, that Levite, and he looked down in the ditch and he goes, eh, man, I'd like to help, but I got other stuff to do. I got other things. And then Jesus said, a, a third person walked by. He was a Samaritan. Now a Samaritan just isn't a way to identify another ethnic group that lived in Israel. Samaritans were hated by Jews. In the area of Samaria in, in, in Israel where the Samaritans lived, a Jew going from the north to the south would walk an extra couple of days around Samaria to not have to go through it or engage anybody in conversation or to deal with any Samaritans. They were the most hated of the hated. But a Samaritan came by. A Samaritan saw the guy in the ditch and he knelt down and he fixed him up as the best he could and had to put the guy on his feet and helped him get to a hotel where he could recover and rest. Gave the crook at the hotel his credit card and said, put all the charges on my credit card. Put all the charges on, you know, and I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll, I'll pay for it all. I'll take care of this guy. I can't, I don't know what else to do. So who was the neighbor? Was it the priest? Who would have fit their definition of neighbor? Was it the Levite? Who would have fit their definition of neighbor? It was the most hated and despised person they could ever imagine. He was the neighbor, Jesus said. I should do what I can to guard and protect my neighbor's reputation and life. Well, who's your neighbor? Well, the person who actually lives in your neighborhood that you can't stand and detest because of what they do or the way their house looks or how they behave, that's your neighbor. The person at work who has that annoying personality that you can't stand, who's always bothering you, maybe who's stolen some of your accounts, that person... That person is our neighbor. 
the least likely person we could imagine, the, the most hated person that we could ever have in our mind or our heart. How, how about a, a radical Muslim? He's our neighbor. A same-sex couple came by and took care of the guy. They're our neighbor. Whoever we have in our vision that we don't think would fit the definition of our neighbor, that, Jesus says, is our neighbor. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. That's a completely different way to live. What if rather than gossip or critical information or news that tears down somebody, we said only good things about people? We built them up and we encouraged them. My friend Jim Boltman, who was the president of Hope College for 14 years, had a leadership principle that he always put into practice. He said, I, I praise people in public, and I only criticize them in private. So if you were the provost, if you were the vice president of admissions, if you were the dean of students, if you were the vice president of advancement, you would only hear in public about how great you were and what a great job you were doing and everything was good. And only when he had you in his office would he give you any constructive criticism. Because it wasn't important to trash people's reputation or even their performance to review it in front of everybody else. I mean, if we practiced that, to only be positive and encouraging with people, it certainly would limit our Facebook posts, wouldn't it? It certainly would limit the political campaign we're involved in right now, wouldn't it? Jesus' followers not only avoid false testimony or gossip or lying, but we live by what we call the New Testament's mutual commands. They're spread throughout the New Testament. We're supposed to love one another and forgive one another and serve one another and encourage one another and bear one another's burdens and stir up one another to good works. This is what we do. This is how you fill this in in a positive way. I should do what I can do to guard and advance my neighbor's testimony. And I do that when I love one another and serve one another and encourage one another and forgive one another. That's what I'm doing everywhere that I go. And it changes everything in our lives and in the lives of others. So there's an 84-year-old woman named Charlotte who is a longtime, highly involved person in her church who uh, was always a part of their adult Sunday school class and Charlotte was known as a person who was kind and generous. She was very hospitable. If you were new, she'd come up and make sure you felt at home. She was very gracious. And she always spoke words of encouragement into people's lives. She always told them how great of a job they were doing or what was good about this or what was good about that in their life. She always had words of encouragement. And particularly, particularly the targets of her words of encouragement were people who were on the fringes of the congregation. Not the center of attention, not the elected leaders, not the power brokers in church, the people who kind of lived on the fringes. Charlotte would seek them out and pour encouragement and love into their life. And people took a notice. Charlotte got a note one time from a widowed single mother who was raising four children. And the note from this woman said, it's important for, to me for you to know that your supportive comments about my family mean a great deal to me. At this point in my life, my children consume most of my time and energy and, of course, my money. Expensive little people they are. I'm trying very hard to give them the very best start I can. And when you notice it, you know, when you notice it, Charlotte, and you say something about it, 
It means that just maybe I'm on the right track. Now when you ask Charlotte about why she was always so encouraging and loving, it wasn't, well, that's what the Bible tells us we should do. She would tell you the story of the way she grew up. She grew up in a family where her father had um, invested in a farm and it didn't make it. They lost everything. And she watched her dad suffer from the consequences of that loss for the rest of her life. It wasn't just the financial consequences. It meant they kind of always eked out a living and they could barely put food on the table. But it was more kind of like the emotional consequences of, I've let my family down. They can't do anything because I made this huge mistake. I don't know how I'm going to go on with my life. Charlotte watched her dad punish himself for the entire rest of his life until he finally passed away. And she had her own difficult struggles in life. You know, she was a very bright woman, but she couldn't go to college because her family had no money. She got married, but for whatever reason, she could never have any children of her own. She and her husband struggled financially for a long time in their life until they finally turned a corner. So she had every right in some people's mind to be bitter and angry about life and the way life had treated her. But she had known the grace of Jesus Christ in her life. And she knew what it was like to love others as you've been loved. And she knew it was her role to forgive people, to love people, to encourage people, and to serve people. And it made all the difference in the lives of others and in her own life. We shouldn't give false testimony. We shouldn't spread lies about other people. But more importantly than avoiding that, wouldn't it be great if we spoke love and encouragement and support and service to the people that we met every day? Following the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ who didn't just teach about love and forgiveness and encouragement and support but lived it every day lives were transformed because of the words that he spoke into other people's hearts and minds and so O oh Lord help us to be men and women who rather than critical are supportive who rather than demeaning are encouraging who rather than avoiding, we engage and we love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Just a couple of announcements before we worship with our tithes and offerings this morning. One is, is that beginning next Sunday and then continuing through Labor Day weekend, uh, we will worship only once on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here in the sanctuary. Um, And so we won't have a 9 o'clock service. We won't have a 10.30 service. We'll have one service at 10 o'clock. And you might want to get here early because those 9 o'clock people will be taking your seats. So make sure you get here. Um, so next, starting next Sunday, which is 4th of July weekend through Labor Day weekend. Um, secondly, in an ongoing effort to kind of meet 
cultural needs and kind of meet people where they are in our culture. You know, when we do our offering in our offertory, you know, we, you know, you can write checks and put it in the basket as it goes by or whatever. And that's helpful and that's great. We love that when you do that. But there, you know, I don't write checks anymore to pay my bills. I do everything online. I do everything electronically. And so we, we, we can provide ways for you to do that too. And so when we give offertory instructions from now on, we might say now it's time for our tithes and offerings. You can do so by placing something in the basket or you can get out your phone. And you could go to the, um, the Elmhurst CRC app, and you could push on give. And when you push on give, you'll get an opportunity to give right there. You don't have to leave your seat. It's, it's equally as holy and consecrated as if you write a check and put it in the basket. It still is something that God honors. And that's the way our world kind of works today, right? If you're visiting this morning via live stream, and you're going, oh, man, I wish I could participate in the offering... There you go, ladies and gentlemen. That's how you can do it. I mean, Becky and I, we, every two weeks, our account is swept of an amount of money that goes into the offering. I never have to remember the check. If I forget, I don't have to remember it the next week. I don't have to write a bunch of other checks. It's done for me. I get a notice from church. When I get that notice from church, I pause and I pray and say, God, whatever that is, use it. Bless it. You know? And so whatever way you want to participate in the offering right now is great for you. But let's worship God with our tithes and our offerings.